What's up, y'all? It's Zach from Living Corporate, and you know we're back, right? Every single week, for, or for those who don't know, right? Because every every episode is someone's first episode. Living Corporate is a platform, a digital media network that creates content that centers and amplifies Black and Brown people in the workplace, and we do that by having incredible conversations and just really creating material and media that pushes past white centric narratives that lionize the majority and overextend grace to those who have shown a historic propensity to harm us. Um, So this does not mean that we are anti-white, more so we are pro-humanity, and we show that by affirming the humanity of all people and by giving voice, voice, and voice, and voice, and voice to perspectives that often go unheard or, um, frankly, just ignored. And, you know, it's with that that I'm really, I don't know, I come to you all, I'm recording this in a fairly pensive mood as I think about, I think about the role of different generations and what role folks play, right? So, like, I'm a millennial, I'm 31 years old, so I'm young, I'm not young, young, right? Like, I'm no longer, the, like, millennials are no longer the, the young kids on the block, despite what mainstream media would say. There's a whole generation under us that are entering the workforce in droves and that is Gen Z, right? Um, we are now the ones with kids, the ones thinking about how we're going to take care of our parents. We're the ones perhaps buying our first or second home. Right. And for some of us, you know, cause we're, a lot of us are just entering our thirties. We're thinking about what we're trying to do with our lives. Like what legacy are we trying to really leave? What are we trying to build? What are we trying to create? What are we trying to do that's going to outlive us? That's what some of some of us are thinking about. The friends and the people that I've been blessed to know, those are the things that we talk about, right? As, we, as we're, you know, really getting into grown, grown uh, phase of life, right? Out of college, like, you know, you're, you've been working for seven, eight years. You, you're grown, 21 and then some. And it's with that um, that I continue to think about just, you know, the a new, the nuanced discussion, but the one that still needs to happen as challenging as it may be, is what do we do with the generational tension that we have within the corporate space? Right. There are folks um, who have been here before us. There are black and brown leaders who are in very senior positions and it's not malicious. It's not um, always, again, like negative, but. There is a reality that different generations experience the workplace differently, have different expectations and carry different traumas and frustrations. And and, and again, I'll say it, expectations on what the workplace should provide to them. Right. I can think about my parents. And my parents are more likely to be like, look, you just need to get in there and get your money and leave. Right. And that's common within like the Gen X baby boomer. Uh, space, right? To say, look, don't get anybody too upset, get your money and you can change things on your own. You change things from the inside, but you got to play the game, you know, play the game to say that a lot. That's a, that phrase is tired. Uh, and I say that with love, but it is, but there's these conversations that we have, right? And, and you have this younger generation. That's more of an activist generation. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying all black millennials at work are activists, quite more so the opposite. 
but there is a, a healthy contingency of black professionals who are millennials who simply will not put up with the nonsense. And, you know, for those who are anxious or nervous about black millennials, black and brown Gen Zers are going to be even worse. Right. <laughs> Quote unquote worse. This is probably one of the most socially conscious and educated or at least aware people groups coming into the workforce. And so then like the question is like, okay, what do we do? What do we do and how do we collectively organize and have discussions and share knowledge and impart wisdom and progress, right? For the sake of equity and human dignity in a space that hasn't been inclusive to us, but has seen progress and change in the past 60 years. Right. Because like, I think it would be foolish if we don't engage those who have been here before us or who are still here and talk to them and learn from them and ask questions and challenge them respectfully and also be willing to be challenged. And so it's with that. I'm really excited about the discussion that I was able to have and the person that we have on Living Corporate today, James Lowry. Um, and so, you know, we're going to get into our discussion uh, with James, but just really quick. James Lowry is really like the first black consultant in America for like, you know, a major firm. Um, he was a consultant for McKinsey in 1968. Right. <laughs> and like, yeah, as I said out loud, he was a consultant again. He was a consultant for McKinsey in 1968. And he's still alive and he's still imparting incredible wisdom. And so I'm really excited about the conversation you're going to hear from he and I. It went really long, but I'm hoping that you'll take the time and you'll, you'll hang with us and listen, because I tell you, he dropped a lot of gems and um, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the fact that, you know, we were able to capture this and bring it to y'all. But before we do that, I want to go ahead and make sure that we tap in with Tristan for his latest career tip. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. This week, let's talk about why you should take a break. According to the U.S. Travel Association, in 2018, 55% of Americans did not use all of their vacation time. In that same year, the U.S. Travel Association reported that American workers accumulated 768 million unused vacation days. That's wild, and probably one of the reasons why burnout was recognized by the World Health Organization as an occupational phenomenon. There are so many reasons why people don't use PTO or create breaks for themselves, but by far the biggest one is guilt. More than half of U.S. workers, around 54%, reported feeling guilty about taking vacation time either sometimes, often, or always, according to a survey of more than 2,000 full-time workers in the United States by Turnkey Vacation Rentals. With more people working from home and staying indoors due to the coronavirus, it has become increasingly difficult for people to unplug and most have begun working even longer hours. It is hard to draw a distinction between work and personal time when you're working from home, which can increase your stress levels. Many of us think, well, I'm at home or I will be at home. Why would I take PTO? Well, let me answer that. According to a study looking at the work habits of more than 600,000 people in the U.S., U.K., and Australia, People who work more than 55 hours a week are 33% more likely to suffer a stroke and have a 13% greater risk of heart attack than those who work 35 to 40 hours weekly. 
Now, I'm sure you're like, well, since I can't take an actual vacation, what should I do? Maybe you simply take a day to devote to yourself, read a book, or watch a movie. Maybe you take a day to devote spending time with your kids so you can feel better later in the week when you're not able to be 100% present. You could go hiking, learn a new skill, or even get to some of those home projects you've been wanting to do. Whatever it is, just make sure to be mindful in the moment and shut out thoughts about work. Look, this year has been a crazy one. Between the pandemic, racial injustice, and the contentious election, we have been living in a state of perpetual stress and anxiety. Take some time for yourself. I know sometimes it can feel easier said than done, but taking a break is worth it. Everyone around you will benefit, and believe me, the work will still be there. Thanks for tapping in with me this week. I look forward to talking to you next week. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Mr. Lowry, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing great, man. Nothing brings me greater joy than talking to young people like yourself. Because I have the utmost confidence by sharing whatever wisdom I have and, and whatever wisdom you have, we can make the world a better place. So I'm honored by that. Um, I really want to get into it. Right. Because like so, you know, I have a mentor of mine. His name is Matamba Austin. And he was one of the first black consultants in McKinsey in like 1994. But you were the first black consultant at McKinsey in 1968. And 68. so. In 1968, I'm trying to get an understanding of like, (laughs) I can't. So here's the thing. So like, just for context, right? Like I was born in 1989. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, and my parents were born in 1964. So like, I'm trying to wrap my mind around what it was like just for you to be a black consultant in 1960. Like, give me an overview of just what, what was that experience like as you look back? Well, in, in anticipation of your, your first question, I, I said, what was it like? I said it was, one, exciting, it was challenging, and enlightening. Now, what, what did I mean by that? Mm. I think it was exciting because I was going to be working on Park Avenue, yeah. 245 Park Avenue. And although my experience had been with the Peace Corps and working in, in Bed-Stuy, I had never lived and worked in corporate America. So it was not only was I going to go into corporate America, but, you know, I was going to be with one of the most prestigious consulting firms in the world. So it it was just very exciting. So, you know, I'm pretty positive in mental attitude kind of guy. It was challenging, though, because my degree was in international economics and not business. Okay. And, And in my class, you know, were the top students from the top business schools in America. Uh, and, and, and during 1968, the vast majority of McKinsey consultants came from three schools. They came from Harvard, Wharton, and Stanford. And then they would let others in if they were outstanding from Dartmouth and maybe Northwestern University of Chicago, places like that. The majority of the students were from Harvard, Wharton, and, and Stanford, and and many of the people from Harvard. There was a disproportionate number from Harvard. Most of them were were uh, fish, were scholars, 
So they they were official scholars. And so there was a top of the class, Lou Gerstner, who later became the president of IBM and American Express and then IBM was in my class. Wow. So, so that was very challenging. And then many of them, because they had gone to Harvard, had been trained in the case method. So the case method was what they'd been trained on in Harvard. It was now taken to McKinsey, and they used basically the same kind of approach in, in, in perfecting the art of problem solving. And so that was all new to me, too. And then in, in addition to having to quickly learn the art of problem solving, a la Harvard and a la McKinsey, I had to learn to write that way to be able to be effective as a consultant. But it was also enlightening because I quickly learned how leaders of major corporations and governments made decisions. So, you know, you know, you learn about stuff, you read about stuff academically, and you hear about it third hand, mm-hmm. but you're in big meetings where with big dogs making big decisions. So, and then you learn how they made them and what were the things that influenced leaders or what do we do at, at McKinsey to make that decision making that much easier and hopefully correct it uh, correctly so that, you know, they would keep calling us back. So that was, that's why I said it was, it was also very enlightening. I mean, at what point in 1968 as the only black consultant, what point were you trusted to actually give advice to white leaders, both at the client and internally? Well, there are three parts of that one. Well, <laughs> I had the confidence because I was pretty, I was pretty cocky, you know. So <laughs> I had confidence. So, but you know, and I say this, you know, sincerely because I think it's important. You know, I, I started going. To, I went to eighth grade with white people. So then I went to Grinnell College, where I was a big man on campus, and I was yeah. a big athlete. Then I went to Tanzania, and now that was different because I was still talking to white people, but they were British. Mm. So if it was a different kind of group. It was a different kind of reaction, but it didn't stop me from being who I was. And then when Peace Corps and then later on, and when I saw all these very important people coming from the east side of New York, coming to look at what they call Bobby's Project, uh, mm. you know, I, I wasn't intimidated by him. So it, it didn't, you know, I, I'm dealing with him the whole time. Now, the second part of the question, when did they accept it? You know, I tell this, this is a real story, you know, uh, when I was, you know, with McKinsey and, and back in the days, and you're going to talk about it later, about the 68, you know, how is 68 different now? Right. You know, part of it is, was the leadership of that time. So you had many of your leaders in, in many of the top corporations that had been there for 20 and 30 years. Yeah. They worked their way up. So they got to the corner office. They were, you know, they had the jets, but many of them were older people. And I remember using my McKinsey, you know, approach and knowledge uh, in one of those meetings with a very important CEO of a major corporation in, in, you know, probably, I think it was probably around 1970, you know, something. And and he had never enough to say, he said, well, you know, Jim, that sounds good, but, you know, your advice on this issue, you know, you're not really black. So, wait, what? Yeah, that's what he said. Back in the day, the more you came out of the ghetto and sounded like the ghetto mm. and and dressed like the ghetto, the people in the corner offices and major corporations said, those are the people we ought to listen to because they got the answers. Well, as I so I wrote in my book, I said, 
they might have defined the problem, but they sure in hell didn't know how to solve the problem. Mm. But that was happening in the 60s, in the late 60s and early 70s, that, uh, you know, there was this mindset. So I was still going to be who I was. And then, you know, the further I got up in, in, in at McKinsey, the people behind me had to listen to me anyway. But I would say, honestly, and that's why I have a very strong relationship with all the former people at McKinsey, you know, that they respected me and, and, and did and, and many of the clients did as well. But it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. I mean, we had to dress the part, look the part, you know, clearly articulate our vowels and all those kind of things. <laughs> <laughs> so they would say, okay, this brother's okay. But no, but it was it was all what we had to go through. I mean, I think about the politics of the time, right? Like, so, uh, you know, when you think about the movement of Panthers then, like, were there similar critiques or tensions and attitudes in the workplace, right? So, like, I I don't know, right? So, I think about how now talking about political leanings um, or even talking, you know, even like just bringing those things up is a little less taboo than I imagined it was back then. But I'm just, I guess I ask because I think about how prominent the Panthers were. And just where the civil rights movement was at that moment, did you ever have situations where you had white colleagues or just your colleagues? I mean, because by default, they were all white. Is yeah. um, Were folks ever asking you questions about your political leanings or, or what, how you felt about the, the happenings of the time? Yeah, but I think, I mean, it, this really tells you about the times, too. I think at those, during those times, you had Park Avenue and you had Bedford-Stuyvesant. And so I, for a while, I lived in Bedford-Stuyvesant, you know, taking the transfers or the ground to 245 Park Avenue. They were like two different worlds. I mean, so they kind of knew about the Black Panthers. And then what you, if you, if you can, if I can take you back in time, okay, at that time, there were only three major TV stations. Okay. CBS, NBC, ABC. We didn't we yeah. didn't have social media and we didn't have, you know, cable. So that was it. And so what you even had there, you had two different groups of black uh spokesmen and you define leaders in where you want to. And and then you had on one hand, on one day you might have Philly and, and rap talking about burn the place down burn baby burn and then you would have the older guard like Whitney Young and and, and Wilkins and, and John Lewis and others you know are more we would say more moderate in their, their approaches and, yeah. and their feeling so they got a lot of good press for trying to do the right thing I think I and then I so even within a corporation like BCG they were they were inquisitive but they really didn't spend that much time because everything was so segregated in terms of mindset, in terms of geographical location. So it, and when the people were burning down stuff in Los Angeles, didn't really touch the partners at BCG or the partners at McKinsey or partners at Bay. It, it really didn't affect them. It was something they saw on television, but it wasn't close. And I think you're seeing a different kind of thing there. So if you look at the national leadership, you know, it, it was Kennedy but Kennedy's were short-lived. Right. I mean, they were short-lived. So you had a shift, you know, and that's when, you know, that was my impetus, you know, Peace Corps and all that kind of stuff. You know, so we were really progressive before our times. 
enlightened before Hobbes. And then Johnson came in. We didn't know what was going to happen when Johnson came in, but Johnson was a political animal and he did leverage, you know, the times and his Southern background and his IOUs within the Senate to be able to get laws passed. Okay. Yeah. So that was a change. That was a turning point. But I think what most people probably in your generation don't, don't realize there was a major, major turning point in corporate leadership around the United States. Hmm. And, and I would characterize the leadership was basically Eastern Ivy League Republican leadership in the Republican Party. You know, and, and you had Nixon and then Carter got in there for four years and then you got Reagan and then you got Bush. So that was your leadership coming out of uh, New England. And then because of Car- what Johnson did, and Jimmy Carter was able to be the probably, and then Clinton kind of did it as well, but to be the Southern boy with a Southern accent to get a fair representative uh, vote in Southern states to become president. After that, the whole thing shifted from a Republican-led Ivy League leadership cadre to a Southern Western leadership cadre. And that's what we have now. And and I don't think most people realize what happened, you know, in the late 60s and then late 70s and early 80s in terms of how the nation changed. It's a different Republican Party, as we're seeing right now, than the Republican Party that I knew during my my McKinsey days and my later well, that's days. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't debate you one second on that. I, I mean, like if you were to compare uh, like the Republican platform uh, to the uh, late 60s, early 70s uh, to, yeah. to the Democratic platform today, frankly, I mean, of course, you'd see differences, but the dissonance is not as basically. basically. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, but even in during my day, I mean, we would have Republicans like Percy and Illinois yeah, Jab in New York. It's very little difference between those and Democrats. You know, in Dirksen, you know, it just is very, very different. I mean, it wasn't very different. I mean, many went to the same schools. They thought the same thing. They just happened to be part of the Republican Party on campus and they become to it. But very different. And then the other thing we had too, which is part and parcel of the change, is our communities were different. Hmm. And the diversity was defined differently. Mm. Uh, and then our elected officials were different. So you had a smaller group of elected congressmen who were black and brown. And uh, it made a difference. But now you got a larger number. And then the communities, I mean, we have to understand the good and the bad about the poverty program. Uh, the poverty program came out with Linda Johnson as war on poverty. And the good news about that, you know, with all the money that supposedly went into the urban areas, you saw many of your leaders coming out of that, funded by federal government, to be community organizers and community leaders. Um, like, you know, Barry, Marion Barry out of, out of D.C. He was a community organizer. And then you had Ernie Green, who was part of the Little Rock, you know, uh, group, and he became kind of a union guy. And he becomes the secretary. So, yeah, people like that coming out of the poverty program. And I think the poverty program, the good news about it, it gave money to the community. It did kind of 
chill them out over that time period instead of rioting. But it also created uh, new cadres, and so that's very powerful. And but now you know we're at another place, and we got to look at what's different. And you're asking the right questions. What's different between 1968 and the year 220 uh, right now? You know, and then we have Jesse. So you you went through that leadership with Stokely, Rap, John Lewis, Wilkins, and Roy Evans was defined as a leader, but he wasn't a leader at court. Uh, then you had Jesse and Andy coming behind that, and now you got an old Jesse and a, and a young Al Sharpton. So the question you got to ask you and all the people that are going to be listening to this and reading this is, what do we do next? I mean, do you really need another Jesse coming on a white horse and going to save black people? <laughs> personally, I don't think that's going to happen. No, I don't think so. I, so you know, what I what I personally envision is. I don't know. I was just talking to a to a mentor about this, um, man. I, I really hope, similarly to how um, you look at the NBA right now, so like Milwaukee Bucks decided to to you know to sit out a game, right? In light of Jacob Blake uh, being you know being shot in the back seven times as children, and what I fantasize about is on the corporate level that there's some type of boycott that Black and Brown people either collectively take you know a bunch of time off or all leave at the same time. And um, and demand certain things be met. You know, I think I think for me, when I think about like, you know, generation to generation, I would imagine, Mr. Lowry, that like the younger generation should probably do things that push the older generation, maybe that they maybe not agree with. Right. I feel like if I do things that you fully agree with. Then I'm probably not pushing hard enough. Right. Like the like the Mm -hmm. the same tactics. Um, don't work, won't work generation to generation. There needs to be wrinkles and shifts and changes. That doesn't mean that we don't learn. We stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. But, right. but, but, I, but to your point, no, I don't think it's going to be one individual. I think it's going to have to be a collective. It has uh, to be a collective. It has to be a collective movement. And it needs to be really like drastic. That is that probably to many is going to come across really extreme and sacrificial. But, you know, I think in this moment, right, like, in this moment, we're still seeing some of the same shuffling from corporate America um, where they're doing this, putting out the same statements. But, you know, to, to your point, I'm 30 years old. Right. I literally have not seen half of what you've seen. So I really want to talk a little bit more about in 1981. Uh, you went back. So, you you know, you left McKenzie. Uh, yep. You started your own practice and then you went back to McKenzie in 1981, not to go back to work for them, uh, but to address and talk to them about the lack of representation. I'm curious about what that journey looked like um, and you transitioning away, um, how you came back. And then I'm curious, really, how do you feel about representation, uh, specifically black representation at McKinsey today? Well, I'm going to touch each one of those, but I think I didn't want to lead that other piece because what you were saying is very interesting. Give it to me. And very powerful. And I really want you to help me, and I think we all, as you say, got to be cohesive, collective, what I would say, intergenerational kind of approach. And I watched basketball, and I watched the response of Kenny, Shaq, and Charles, um, and they were talking about Kenosha, and they were talking about the response of the basketball players. And Shaq, who, as you know, his father was you know military, and he wants to be in police. And Shaq said, look, we can get all emotional and we can have, you know, black lives matter. 
and we can tear down statues. But what's going to be our strategy? Now I'm quoting him. Right, right. What's going to be our strategy? So I'm not saying yes or no in terms of how you know the 30s to 50s should be. But I think what you have to be very, very, you know, analytical about is the whole issue of structural racism. Mm-hmm. What does it look like? What does it smell like? How does it permeate at all levels of our society? And so you have probably, you're going to have some very powerful people meeting probably every other day at the business roundtable saying, what should we do about structural racism? You know, well, let's say they're well meant, uh, real intention, and then they got people behind them, you know, trying to give them the guidance, you know. But we're, we're dealing with the reality, whether you've been there five years, 10 years, or 20 years, white people still control the power. I mean, and, and, you know, and I say that, I mean, yeah. And it's a rea- you just got to deal with the givens. It's the reality. No, yes, that's a right. reality. It, it, and it doesn't matter on this continent and other continents. It's still control. And even, you know, quiet as kept, sometimes you really deal with it on the continent of Africa. The British and the French still have a tremendous amount of power. So I'm just saying that's a given, okay? So how do you attack this? Then you got the other extreme where the police are really setting up black people to be shot by young white kids. So you have these two extremes right, right. in America, okay? How do we, and I'll put you at the at the front of this. Sure. The black intelligence here, well-intentioned, definitely a, must be a change agent, but to what degree are you going to analyze all these elements, and I'm sounding like a consultant, all <laughs> these elements with all the givens and, and ages and say, what are we going to do on Monday morning? And what kind of impact do we want to have? And what routes are we going to use or what use track? What will be our strategy to be a winning strategy? So hopefully with my age, after being in this stuff for 50 years, it ain't worse. So that's what I say. I mean, I'm just saying I agree with you and on several of these, these Zooms and podcasts, I say, look, Change has incurred has not occurred in the black community. It wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for black use. Yeah, and young. I mean, and this is true all over the world. And black women it's specifically. You're right. It's it's true in China. It's true in England. I mean, yeah. So you guys are the gonna be the ones that are gonna galvanize and and motivate and inspire. But what I say in the book, and I strongly feel, yes, sir, that. We all have to work together. So once I started a foundation and it was called the third generation and the whole idea I had, and I'd love to get your responses, was mm. to have black people from all different generations. If you got a pyramid, you would have me at the top with all these old people and they're going to be dying. <laughs> but we have wisdom. We have contacts. We have money. Absolutely. We have LUs. We have relationships. Yeah. Uh, we have experiences that should be shared. And then there are other people who would benefit, who have benefited, but we were the first in this and the first in that, who got into the right schools and got into corporate America where it was denied. My parents are poster workers. Right. They couldn't get into corporate America. So you have a much larger group. And even coming behind them is this large group of very talented 
you know, inspired young black people, you know, from historically black colleges. And, you know, you guys are the ones that are going to make the difference. But all I would say is lean on us, learn from our mistakes, and have a game plan. And that's the only reason that I did in my book was to put in, here are the 10 things I think black people got to do differently in order to be where we are. And yeah. everybody could have their own 10. I don't care. Maybe it gets a discussion, but all I'm saying, we can't just tear down statues and march and even get shot if we ain't got a plan. We go. No, so so yeah, you so you asked for my reaction. Okay. I hundred percent agree with you. Yeah, I'm, I agree with you, Mister Lowry. Like, so you know, it's it, it it has to be both in. Like when you study like the movements, Black Liberation movements, it was never like the destruction or the the tearing down of like physical monuments and things like was always paired with like a very intentional like critique and attack on systems and structures. And so to your to your point around like intergenerational organizational strategies or like um, mm-hmm. right, I, I agree that like so when you think about it, if you to, I, I love the pyramid example because you're absolutely right in in your in the context you provided the the oldest generation is at the top and they should be leveraged and engaged to and honored. Um, because they do have the network, the wisdom, the experience, the capital, both social and uh, financial. And then when you think about like the youth, like the youth are really responsible for pushing things forward. So them being at the base makes sense because they have the energy, they have the benefit of youth and like the ones that are there for the right reasons. They have the, they have the current context, they understand the technology, they understand Mm -hmm. the strategy that works in today's social societal Frame, right. right. So I 100 percent agree with you. I think I think the biggest mistake that we make, especially like as you know, I don't, I would not consider myself out of respect to activists. I would not say I'm an activist. I think that all of us practice activism in our ways by just simply being authentically black in our spaces. But I would bit. say that like a mistake that youth can often make is dismissing our our, our predecessors um, and those who came just those who came before us. Because like, I mean, you're here for a reason, right? So when I think about, I don't talk about faith, but as a Christian, like, I definitely believe in honoring your elders because like Mr. Lowry, you're here, you've been here longer than me and you're, you, you've been around and you're living on this planet for a reason. Like you, there are plenty of people in your generation who are not here and you're still here. So it would be unwise to not seek uh, wisdom and insight from you. And even if we disagree on principle, yes. like 80% of the time, it doesn't matter because there's still value in your insight. And so, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm really curious. Like, so as we've been having this conversation, like something that's been in the back of my mind is it's, and I don't know if this is like part of your, maybe you, you tell me it's like part of personality or if it's like something you've learned over time is like, you don't seem really ruffled. Like, is that just a product of you seeing so much and like seeing things kind of happen in a more cyclical nature? I'm curious about like your temperament now in your day compared to your temperament, maybe when you were like my age in your thirties. Oh, that's a good question. And, and, and now I'm smiling. You can't see it, but I'm smiling because, <laughs> you know, I have, some stand, I have somebody staying with me who's, who's really kind of taking care of me, but uh, just a good friend. And but she's much younger. And, uh, and she says the same thing. She says, I'm exposed to so much now. You're educating me on so much. And I see even today how these things are, are really even directed at you personally. But you don't seem ruffled. Hmm. You just don't seem ruffled. And I would be so angry. And I was angry, to answer your question. I was very angry. And I was angry at my people. I was angry at white people. 
but not all white people. I, I've never been that way. And yeah. because I, the way I grew up and the friends that I had and the mentors I had, I could never be angry at all. I did. But I was, I was angry at, at really what we were talking about is structural racism. And when I got, I said about 45 to 50, I did a very deep introspection about myself. Mm. And I said, being angry and blameable, it doesn't make me healthy. It doesn't make me productive. And I would say it don't make me profitable. Mm. So once I started to say, let me go inside and see what I got to fix first. Let me fix this first. Then I'm better able to be a change agent and be an advocate for economic change and minority business. There was this kind of calmness that came over me because I knew where I wanted to go. That's the thing when you get to be my age now. You just say, I'm going to take each day at a time and do as much as I can because the good Lord might take me. But mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons I want to, and we'll talk about that later. But I just have to be calm. I have to be wise and I have to be supportive. And I think that's my role. And once you start seeing that that approach, working with others in this very, very complex and challenging world we live in, brings you the kind of reverse that you aspire to have and the impact you want to have, you say, okay, this is the right way to be. You're feeling very good about yourself. You know, and I tell everybody, it's better to light the candle than to curse the darkness. So as long as I'm on candles for me, hmm. you know, when you said you want to talk to me, I said, yeah, maybe if I can light one more candle with one other person yeah. or 10 people or 15, that's what the good Lord put me on this earth to do. Yeah. And, and as much as I can do it in the time I have remaining, that's how I'm going to dedicate my life. And I say that in the last chapter of my book. Yeah. But you want to get back to McKenzie. No, I, I think do. that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I get back to that. And then I would say, why did I leave? I think, you know, and you know, I, t- I started the whole conversation about my, I wouldn't say it's insecurity, but, you know, questioning, you know, if I didn't have a Harvard degree, was as hard as the guy in the office next door. Hmm. And so when I came back from here, very very successful two-year engagement where I was leading a team to decentralize government in Tanzania. I was kind of like a hero. Got a big and they said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to get a big bonus. But I think I want to leave New York, try and start a public practice in Chicago. And I want to go to the executive program at Harvard. So they said, you want to go to the executive program? I said, yeah, I want to go to the So it was a four-month program, and it's still in existence, you know. And I went to Harvard and for four months. And it was it was another one of those kind of lightning experiences because once I got there and I started taking the case method, you know, and I started knocking the ball out of the park, yeah. I said to myself, you know, it's like going backwards because after being, I think at that time I was four and a half years at McKinsey, you know, I was like going back to graduate school. And so it was kind of embarrassing because after a while, professors wouldn't call them. Or they were calling me when they didn't feel like getting the right answers. And I love that kind of role. But that was the final thing I needed. I had done well at McKinsey. I had put money on the table for McKinsey. I'd saved McKinsey in a, in a difficult situation. I made a lot of friends at McKinsey. Then to Harvard. I was able to go to Harvard and say, okay, is this what it's all about? Well, I put on my, my pants just like they do. And I saw cases just like other people did. And that's when I said, you know, 
I think I was, but I felt, in all honesty, and maybe people don't do this anymore, uh, I was forever grateful that McKinsey let me go to Africa and go back to Africa and to pay for my, you know, four months at, at, at Harvard. Definitely, when I was like the president of my class, I'll never gonna forget it. I was the big honcho at Harvard came running. He said, Larry, Larry, you were first. And I'm thinking I was the first black president yeah. in the program. He said, you were the first person elected who wasn't an astronaut. He was the president of the class. <laughs> <laughs> Every astronaut was in, in this program that elected president, whether they deserved it or not. But back in those days, the astronauts walked over. So, you know, I said, I can do it. You know, I, I can do anything I want to. You know, I said, I'm going to do it. And so I did. So when I went back, it was kind of like I had a game plan, maybe. And it was always in the back of my mind. I wanted to start my own firm. I wanted to be James S. Larry Dash McKenzie. I wanted to use the knowledge that I had to train other people of color. And I wanted to make money. But I really wanted to foster the whole concept of minority business development. So that's when I decided I wanted to do that. And so I was very clear on why I was doing it. I was very happy. I didn't lose any sleep over leaving McKenzie. I think, you know, we had a great, great relationship. He said, you sure you want to do this? I said, yep, I want to do it. You know, and I, between me and you, I kind of think back, you know, being the only, the first black at McKenzie going into corporate America, I, caught, I probably could have been a superstar. But, at least, you know, corporate America was not as receptive to black people as it is now. Right. And we, and we definitely were not getting P&L responsibilities. They were putting us in administrative positions. Yes. So even today, right? Like when, so, you know, I've been at Accenture. I've been at Capgemini. I'm currently in a big four audit firm. And I think I can count on one hand the number of black folks that I've met who are partners with P&L responsibilities. And so I can't imagine what it was like back then. And then on top of that, the partners and stuff that I typically meet who are black, they're like in the like tactical transactional roles. Like typically they're selling like a, t- a tool or a product. They are not, they're not the ones like in front of like doing deals or M&As or whatever. Like they're not in the client facing. They're in some type of like tech securities type role. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm curious about that. Like, do you, do you see that same trend? Do you feel like I'm, am I oversimplifying that or would you say that I'm, I'm accurate? Well, let's look at that. I mean, that's a, you talk about 1981 going back to McKinsey. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you did ask me that question. I did. <laughs> yeah. So you asked you, and you said, how did you do that? You know, did you use your juice? I said, no, I think the phone, I just called the guy. It turned out the guy was my, you know, mentor in the New York office. He yeah. had a very strong relationship. And when I went to Africa, he was the one that sent me there. And, you know, I tried to tell him what was happening in Africa. And he, he, he heard me, but he didn't. And he, all he could say was, yeah, I understand what, what we're not doing, but it's a British contract. And the partner in charge is out of the UK office. And I said, you're going to mess up. So they messed up. I saved the firm. I really did. You know, by that time, I was established with the firm. I knew all the people because I knew them before because these are the same people I taught. And so, but I called him up. And, I, and he, 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 you know, and because of this, I'm writing all this stuff out there. I'm going to talk to you about 
actually called. He's still alive. He's still around. He's a few years old now. And I called him up. I said, you know, Ryan, you know, you, you play a very significant part of my life. It was a voicemail. Hopefully, he'll call me back. But all my through about my life. But he was my friend. He's been my friend. And so it, was, it wasn't that using my cloud. I used my relationship. And I think that the message I leave for young, young professionals you know, like yourself, and, and you, you said you have left about, you've left two firms. That you, you probably left more, but you didn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm just saying, you know, leave your company on a positive relationship. Mm. Leave your company with many close relationships. Because in the firms that you're working you know, many of these young guys are going to be big dogs. Right. Uh, and so you got to, and then, then try and have, look at the, as many good memories as well as the bad memories. The bad memories will fuel you to be a change agent, to change in your life. But the good memories can kind of soften the blow. And accept mm-hmm. that, you know, whether it's right or wrong, but at Century, they're going to be calling the Century about you and other people like you for the rest of your lives. Right. And I was very cognizant of that. So I left. I was not bitter. I, it was my decision. I could have probably made a round of I made partner, but they didn't ask me to leave. It was my decision. But I, I when I started my firm, and it was it was really supported. Many of my people in, at, at New York office and other offices yeah. that I knew when I became an entrepreneur. I mean, many of my first contracts were ex McKinsey guys running major corporations. Yeah. So you know, I made them proud. They all took pride in me being the black, and I did this, and look at Jim Lowry, he's out there, he's an entrepreneur. And this, that. So that was very, very important. But the big question, you know, and when you asked when I went back, this is sad, but when I went to the 80s with the help of another guy who's a dear, dear friend of mine, yeah, we increased the number of blacks in McKinsey from four to 104 in two years goodness gracious two years wow and i will i will share this with you one of them was susan rice and then i had this zoom and it was it was interesting it was they want to talk about and they had this zoom seven and so i'm there and this guy said well i had to interview i had to interview jim yeah i said why because i i went to mckenzie and I was a partner for 11 years, but I wouldn't have been partner if it hadn't been for you. Wow. And he says, I was part of that 104. Now, this brother could be in, in Trinidad that does over $3 billion in wow. revenue. Wow. And there are 12,000 employees. Wow. So when you start looking back on your life, you say, wow, that's why you did it. But during that two-year period. So the question is... Why are they more professional service? Not just McKinsey. Absolutely not. It ain't just consulting. Right. It is financial services. It's accounting. Any professional service firm that you name, I can tell you the number of partners is less than 1% in any firm. 100%. 100%. I mean, a prominent consulting firm just dropped their diversity inclusion data today. And I want less than 2% of their partners were black. So, uh, yeah, how many were senior partners? Oh, zero. So it gets back to what you were saying before. Yeah, you got partners, 
that really party. Yeah. So that. So yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred. And see, that's what I'm saying, right? Is like, and I've always peeped the. And, and let me take that back. So like, uh, with the senior, it's two of them. It's literally, literally two are the people who are the who are senior party. There's arguments, just like there's a lot of arguments. Is like, how much authority do they even really have, despite what you think they have on paper, right? So. I, well, if they're making money, so yes, if you're yes, making yes. money for the firm, you're gonna get power. Well, it, no, it's super real. It's just I wish we got to talk about that. We got to talk about that because I've also had conversations with black partners who do make the firms they work at money, but there's other political shenanigans that happen, and they still don't get mm-hmm. the authority and recognition that they should, right? So, but I mean that's that's a that's a different conversation. But um, okay, so let's talk about your book, Change Agent: A Life Dedicated to Creating Wealth for Minorities. I really want to understand your impetus for writing this book. Like, what was the draw? There's several. I mean, okay, so I went back. I tell you, I went to a little private school, right? And it was one of those progressive. You think about the time I went in eighth grade. You talking about your father? You talking about you? Think about this. That was 1953. Mm. Okay, one of the top private schools in Chicago. Yeah. Only reason we got it because the Jewish community was not accepted into the other private schools. There were three distinguished private schools in Chicago. One of them was University of Chicago Lab School, which is different because it's different community, different everything. Yep. Two north side were Chicago Lab and Francis Park, where it was a Jewish power structure who said we got to have our own school. Let's put it like this. It's not going to be all Jewish. Yeah. But we're going to play a major role in financing it, growing it, and controlling it. Mm. So you had this very pow- powerful Jewish guy who was on the first board with McDonald's. Okay, that tell you something right there. Yes, that's big. That's big in, back in the day. And he says, we should have more blacks at our school. Mm. So that's how I got in. Yeah. So in eighth grade, coming from the south side, now I thought I was middle class. I wasn't middle class. I was lower class. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in the black community, you thought my it, it's all relative, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. all relative. I mean, I thought big job. My father wasn't like that, but at least you know, we had food and for clothing and all that. But I saw limousines come up there. I saw people's parents getting named in the paper. I saw this. I saw that. I said, Oh, this is another game. Yeah. Once I saw the power of money, it set me on a track, personal track and a black track. And the mm. personal track was, I'm going to be a multimillionaire. Mm. I, I made that decision up in eighth grade. Yeah. So nothing, It was money has never been my number one. Never, <laughs> never, never. My number one objective. But I was wise enough to know the more money you have, a bigger seat at the table. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so it was a means, but it was also ends, and it was also allowed me to live my lifestyle. Yeah. You know, but I watched other groups, and I took this interest in the Jewish group, and, and tracking them historically, and there was a book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, and he started talking about, you know, wealth and creating wealth. I said, man, that's it. And then I started thinking the Jews, and I started looking at other groups, and even now, I mean, I think about the Cubans, it's mm-hmm. only been 50 years. The Cubans down in Miami, they, didn't, they came across on the boat. They didn't have no money. Yeah. They've taken over Miami. Yeah. They, they've taken over the state. Okay? So <laughs> I said, look, people, we can march, we can fight, we can scream, 
and now I can tear down the tattoo. Then I said this in the book. The first thing I said in my recommendations on black people, I said, look, you got to accept in our communities, we don't have capital. Right. Because we don't have capital, we ain't got no power. Mm. And because we know power, the problems that beset black people are going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I've always been dedicated. I've spent my whole life writing reports, writing. I wrote another book before this called Minority Business Success. The same, and really, I did it with a professor from Amos Tuck and Stanford Press. So it was an academic book, but it was, it was kind of a tutorial on how you can grow your businesses. And what we, when we wrote it, you know, it was about seven or eight years ago, you started seeing more people of color leaving corporate America because they were not in the C-suite. And many of the people want to be entrepreneurs. And I will always Jim, Jim, Jimmy Carter credit and Perry Mitchell. When they started talking about it in the 80s, we, we increased the number of black entrepreneurs dramatically yeah. because we had laws being put on the books and many of them are still there because we were fostering a mindset in the black community. It's our right to be an entrepreneur. It is all right to be honest. It's what the hell you do with, you, with your money and what do you do with your power? It's interesting, too. So like so we're talking about, again, like the late 1960s and like there was a time like when you think about like black liberation, black struggle, like political theory or just like political mm-hmm. thought leadership, that the capital was a means to a certain end. But then like as time went on, as we talk about like liberation today, um, a lot of times we really just kind of talk about like black group economics, like in your model, mm-hmm. as you think about black capitalism, is there any element of that that is then like, tied to some type of like upheaval or restructuring or like revolution or do you see the building of wealth as the end okay let me ask this question going back in the history books even before Hollywood started supporting the civil rights movement because of Harry Belafonte and others yeah, 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 yeah. who was a hero of the civil rights movement and supported civil rights movement with money who Gaskin, G-A-S-K-I-N. He owned motels, hotels, things like that, restaurants, big-time restaurants. Even when Maynard got in, he allowed the guy who's had this, and that's where they used to plot and plan, his restaurants yeah. in Atlanta. Yeah. And when Maynard got in, he allowed him, get this, to leave the ghetto to take his restaurant to the airport. Mm. And so then Gaskin could write bigger checks for the civil rights. Mm-hmm. See, there had never been a movement without money there. I'm right there with you. And you're right. So I'm going to give you an example of what I mean. So living corporate as a startup, you know, like we built this like straight bootstrap, right? Like I didn't come into this thinking about how it's going to make money. I bought it from the right. purpose and mission. And yeah. now I'm at a point where like I'm doing fundraising for living corporate and you know, we're raising money and you're hundred yeah. percent right that like right now when I talk to people and like, how can I support you? I don't say, can you pray for me? I don't say, can you, you know what I'm saying? Get write me a, a letter. Cause I'm trying to raise capital. So I get that. I, I get that. I think that's helpful for me because as I hear this, I was curious about, I think what I'm hearing from you is different. Like what I, sometimes when I talk to folks, it's almost like the capital is the end. It's not the means to an end. It is the end. And no, so, yeah. And I say this in the book, you know, simple stuff. My 10 points, pretty simple. Yeah. 
But, you know, I mentioned the black diaspora. Mm. And then when I, and one guy in Trinidad, that's how I think last week, he said, oh, Mr. Lowry, can I have a book signing for you? In the Trinidad. Yeah. He organized this thing. It was amazing. I'll send you a link. It's amazing Please what he do. did. And, and what I'm saying is that now we're talking about another one and connecting Africa and the Caribbean. Yeah. So I think for you young guys, and this is where, you know, the, I think the intergenerational stuff. Yeah. You know, have your dreams, but be realistic in your dreams. But understand that you're going to need big money to do big things. Yeah. Here I am in my late 70s, and I said, wait a minute, I started doing I'm preparing my lectures in Kellogg because I got this program, yes, which I'm very proud of. I've had since 96, where I bring in the top minorities entrepreneurs yeah. on the campus for a whole week. Yes, sir. And, and some of my people, one just became a billionaire. Oh, yeah. my boat. You don't even know who he is. Jimmy John. Did you know Jimmy John Black? What? No. See, I see you learning something. Every- <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we got you here. You, hey, look, I, I know you educated me. That's incredible. Okay. He's black. His daddy was black. They down the Louisiana look white, but they're black. What? Okay. Okay. Jack Howard came out of my class. Now, Janice Howard was one of the panelists on my thing last Thursday. Janice is worth a half a billion dollars. Wow. And Janice thinks big, but when you start dealing with people, you got, we do our homework and your people should do the homework. What does Janice do with her money? Mm. Do you know what she's doing with her money? Who is she supporting? She's from North Carolina A&T. How much money is she giving North Carolina A&T? She's starting a special program on training black kids in STEM. How many people know that? So it's not so much making the money, it is what are you doing with the money? Right. And how are you helping people less fortunate yourself? That's what I've been doing all my life. And I'm just saying that's what we all have to think. So when, when and I, this is true, but, you know, I'll tell you, because you should know this. You know, I'm doing my study and I'm saying, wait a minute, seven out of ten. Okay, I'm, I'm going to give you another test. What are seven out of the ten richest Americans in the world have in common. I mean, they're white men. They're all white men, yeah. What <laughs> That's a given too, man. Come on. What else? Okay, what else? Um, they start with some capital, like some seed capital. Then you're getting close. Okay, you're getting close. Talk to okay. me. Seven out of ten are owners of tech companies. So I'm saying, here I am, old Jim Larry. I said, if black people want to take a major jump, because the other things I thought you were leaning for, a lot of these people got money because they had something that a venture capitalist said, okay, I can finance this young guy, and he's going to make me money, and I'm going to make money. He's going to blow it up, yeah. He's going to blow it up. So if you look at those firms, and Bezos is the richest man in the world now. Right. He didn't inherit money. Hmm. He didn't inherit money. Gates didn't inherit. He didn't inherit money. Okay. So, but they came up with approaches and technology. And many of these young guys, the guy from Uber and all that, they didn't have any money. A couple of guys I could name, they were living in their mama's living room. And garages. Yeah, yeah. And garages. You know, the same thing with Steve Rosiak and Apple. Yeah, yeah. So, where are black people doing that? So, what I did... I said, I got to go to the West Coast. I got to understand this. Fortunately, the West Coast came to me 
And his young guys came and said, we starting this company. And that's what they're between West Coast and East Coast. West Coast culture, I said, man, he said, I'm part of a $2 billion venture fund. Yeah. This is a brother, brother, $2 billion venture fund. Mm. And I went to my partner and I had a concept. And Mr. Lyle got a concept and they gave me, they gave me $2 million. To play. Goodness gracious. They gave him $2 million. Okay. Now, obviously, this boy had made money as an equity partner in the venture fund. Yeah. Okay. So he had some kudos. He could, he could play. He got some chips to play. Okay. Yeah. And so he, start, he gets $2 million. He starts it on a Monday morning. So one of the young guys said, you know, I think we ought to bring in Mr. Lyre. Mr. Lyre, he's wise. He's connected. And he can help us. You know, we're only talking about a year, man, a year and a half. Yeah. I went out and got connected because I want to understand tech, venture capital, because I want to grow a lot of you guys fast. Yeah. Shit. You know, we started doing it. We're doing different things. First thing was get the tech up, get the platform. We got a platform up. Because the whole vision that he had and I had is connect all you people across the United States who are black. We don't know each other. Okay. That's part of the reason I wrote the book. People knew me, but they didn't really know me. They didn't know they you know, like that, though. Yeah. But they didn't know me. Certain people did. You know, <laughs> very important people know But most people don't know me. But anyway, so then I said, wow, this is this is different. Now, so I'm part of the whole game now. Do you know we got another $5 million? Good so we're going to build our most sophisticated tech platform. Okay. So that's an example of how you think big, even in my late age, I can't do what I, you know, I told you, I started this foundation. Yeah. And, and then they stepped over. I, I had scored for the first time 60 people. It was getting too big. I couldn't handle it. It was yeah. just too many young people like yourself wanting to come to my house and listen to me. And learn. So I said, <laughs> I'm doing it. So that's, I'm going to do it through technology. You're yeah. going to be reading about this stuff on this platform. We got 10,000 members now. We're shooting for 20,000. We can grow our own. We're going to do it. But I think what yeah. we got to do is find out where the brothers are and where the sisters are and make this a collective thing I said at the very start of the, of the interview. Mm. We ain't got time to do everything on our own. We, the worst thing that black people could do is have silos. I agree with that. I think so. I recognize the need for money, right? Like, but like, what I think sometimes is that people are so obsessed with being a quote unquote boss. They mm-hmm. don't want to cede power or control in the name of something bigger. And the, the reality is because we don't have the same historical access to capital that our white counterparts have. We don't have the privilege of, you know, sequestering and not working together. And everybody can't work together. That's whatever. But you know what I mean? Like you know, we, we have to do better. So let's talk a little bit more about this book. Right. So and you've been talking through a bit about why you wrote the book and and what you hope people get out of it. You know, I'd like to get an understanding, you know, when you look at these folks in today, like there's a renewed push for equity, inclusion, for organizations to really strive to create true belonging in really tangible ways. And I think about when I think about where you started and you made mention of the 104 folks and, and, and that that group now going on to create even more impact. And like, you know, this the seeds have sprouted grown trees and grown more trees like you have you know i'm sure that even as you look at your life you probably can't even connect and count all the different ways and lives that you've impacted because of your work at mckinsey so with respect to your work and the lack of diversity and inclusion and belonging and equity that you experienced in 1968 
you know, what advice do you have for this new generation of black and brown consultants specifically or just or folks in the service industry seeking to speak truth to power, seeking to create more uh, than what they see in front of them? Like, you know, is there ever a point where you look around and you say we've gotten enough? Like, how do you keep yourself because I don't get the sense that you're satisfied. I feel like if you were satisfied, you wouldn't be writing books. You wouldn't be talking to me. Talk to me about how you're feeling about this moment. Talk to me about your perspective on this moment. And, you know, if you could give advice to like the young consultants in this space today, what would it be? You know, I think part and parcel of the answer would be why I do it is you got to have a positive mental attitude, however bad things are. So I keep doing what I do where I do it. And, and, and sincerely, I sincerely believe that by opening the doors for all these other people coming in after me, and there is a rippling of that I'm affecting change for in the industry. Now, the good news about the industry is the number of you coming in and being in these professional services firms has increased dramatically. The number of partners has not. And why is that? So you got to ask yourself, why is that? So I think, you know, you're going to be analytical. You're being trained as a consultant. The first thing I'd say is, who really makes the decisions on partnerships? Mm. You know, I'm sure it changes from, you know, you know, Deloitte, Chicago is different, Deloitte, Houston is different. But you got to understand who, who's on top. And what, where they go, what synagogue they go to, what church they go to. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, they ain't nothing but people. And if we, if we kind of generalize and not deal with the unique friend, Ron, who, who gave me that opportunity to go to BC, to come back to McKinsey and increase it from 404. So you got to deal with that. Now, the leadership now is different from the leadership because there was, there was guilt when people in the South were, you know, being killed. And so what you, the difference is, and I don't mean in a negative way, but when, when I was there in the 60s, it was only people. Now it's military. Now it's physically challenged. Now it's Eskimo. They, so everybody's under the tent now. And the biggest difference is white women. And once again, I, I don't have anything against white women, but the same guy who lives in, you know, the upscale community in, in Houston, he goes home to white women. His daughter is going in to TCU or MSU, I mean, Southern Methodist, you know, she's a white woman. So it's a whole different comfortability. I think the other thing, too, whether it's right or wrong, it's not even correct, that, you know, we've been fighting to try and get all these black people in and they ain't working. So let's try something else. I mean, that's <laughs> an element of it. Okay, I'm serious. I mean, I, I don't think that's working. So let's, oh, the women. Oh, yeah, 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 let's do it. So I think that's an element of it. And then I think the things that you face, I face, and then we went to Harvard, we went to Morton, we still black, and we still have certain challenges within our homes, our family, our communities that people just don't understand and probably don't care to understand. Mm-hmm. But we are different. And we have different challenges. And if they're really going to be serious about it, they open up their mind. Now, assuming all that stuff happens, then the flip side is, what do we do when we get into these situations? So the advice I would give is very clearly, 
first thing is play the game to win and not play the game not to lose. I've seen too many blacks come into these situations, maybe looking at the history, looking at the numbers, looking at the scarcity of black people in higher positions, and saying, oh, hell, I ain't going to make it. And I know I ain't going to make it because of this. And I know I ain't going to make it. And I give them the advice, and I'm very sincere. I do it at BCG every year. Play the game to win, to become a partner. Even if you don't become a partner. If you play the game to being a partner, you will get more out of the experience. You will get strong people who will strongly recommend you. You might have potential partners out of the experience to do that. But play the game to be a partner. Thirdly, know the difference between a coach, a mentor, and a sponsor. A coach is there to give you the rudiments of being a good consultant. A mentor is somebody you can trust who will give you honest feedback when you need it. Okay? And learn, even with that mentor, if he's good or she's good, She's going to make you flinch on hearing you don't want to hear. Yeah. Okay. You got to be strong and, and got to trust that person to say they're in my corner. And I, it didn't feel good what they said. But if I can learn from that. So that's the mentor. But as you move up three years, years later, you better start developing who's going to sponsor you. That's when it gets back to when I said, who's at the top of this pyramid? And at the end of the day, if you ain't got no sponsor, you're going to say, I want Joe Blow to be a partner in this firm. You ain't getting in. I don't care what kind of evaluation you're going to have. You ain't getting in. So these are the things you have to do. And then the only other quick kind of thing, what I did, I would highly recommend to you guys. You find out who is the smartest son of a gun in Austin. Who's writing the articles for the Harvard Business Review? Who's getting all the right assignments? Who's the guy that all the partners want on their team? Okay? Study that person. See how they write. See how they analyze. See what the charts they even produce. Okay? See how they, they, they present. You know, how they use the language. How they use the language to write. To do decks. Study that son of a gun like anything you've ever done. Every office got two or three superstars. Yeah. And they begin to get close to them. You know, Mr. Lyre, this has been an incredible conversation. Um, before we let you go, uh, you know, typically we ask if anybody has any, you know, uh, shout outs or anything. You've been giving us so many gems this entire conversation. But uh, before I let you go, I didn't know if there was anybody, any org, any group, any individuals that you wanted to show some love to. Yeah, I want to show my love to all my beautiful, beautiful people, white, black, and and Brown at BCG, who really make me feel so good and so respect and so appreciated that I drag into that office, not now, but I dedicate my life to them because it's the more of them I can bring in, the more of them I can help become a partner. And one of mine just not only she left as a partner, the first black female, she's the president of a major corporation. And I remember talking her to join BCG, not to lead BCG and support her when she became a partner at BCG. And now she's the president of McCormick. 
So that's Inky Sleep On. So I'm always going to reach out to them. Uh, I reach out to all the, the young people that you're going to connect me to. Yes, sir. Because I really feel that I do have things to share. I've learned a lot. I've been, and I read the book. I mean, most of the stuff you don't even see, even some of the examples that I mentioned tonight, you'll see in the book. Learn from the book. Ask me questions about the book. And if you really like the book and you got a lot out of it, recommend it to other people. Uh, and that would make a difference. And, you know, I still my people at, at Valence. I mean, Valence is, for me, the hope of the future. We're going to get it together. We're going to set the model. And, you know, in our community, because I was on uh, on the board of John Products, once we went public, everybody and their mother had a hair product company. We got <laughs> and got rich. You know, they said, well, we can do it at George did it. So we have to create big models. You're creating a big model. you got to grow your big model. Deal with people who help you grow it. But think big. Don't ever let anybody deter you from thinking big. Man, I appreciate it. Y'all, you know what we're doing every single week. We're having these conversations with incredible people. I'm just so honored and so thankful to have Mr. James Lowry on our podcast. Make sure you check out um, his book. It's in the show notes, as well as more information about just the story and history, um, frankly, of a, a civil rights legend. I mean, shout out to you, Mr. Lowry. Until next time, y'all, this has been Zach. Uh, we'll catch y'all next time. Peace. And we're back. You know, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about, okay, like what, what roles do we play? And I was talking to a mentor of mine who is firmly Gen X, right? He's firmly generation X. And he said, he said, look, Zach, like you've pushed me more and more to consider younger perspectives. And, you know, I don't know. I, I generally love uh, the person I'm talking about because they really model to me what the older generation should be doing with the younger generations. Right. So he engages me with curiosity. He pushes back and he tells me to slow down. He'll tell me to speed up, but mostly he's telling me to slow down. And I think that's good. Um, I think it's good that he is telling me to slow down or that he's telling me to calm down or telling me to ease up or change my methods. And we, I don't always listen. I don't always agree. But I think therein lies like the healthy tension that should exist. And Loki, I kind of got this from Joe Budden randomly, but because um, he was talking about it in the context of hip hop. But I'm going like, to flip it and talk about it from the context of just like corporate America, professional progression, development, all of that. The reality is, is that if the younger generation isn't doing things to make the older generations a little uncomfortable, they're probably not acting at the top of their generational license, right? Like the younger generations should be creating a healthy amount of disruption and chaos. Like that's what we're here for because we have the energy to do it, right? We should definitely be listening to the older generation, but the main thing that the youngest generation should be doing is building and moving and progressing things. They should be pushing things. You need that. And then the older generations should be a little uncomfortable and not always agree and provide wisdom and just share what they did when they were the younger generation. Right. And just impart that wisdom and frankly, support and fund 
and sponsor the younger generation because the older generation has capital. They have the social capital. They have the financial capital. They have the political capital. So the oldest ones, right, of the living generations should be in a, a more and more sponsorship and impartation role, while the younger generations should be in the progressive pushing pressure healthy chaos good trouble mode right and when both when all of these groups operate at the top of the generational licenses that's when we continue to create healthy change and frankly liberation and so i found it so incredible in my discussion with mr lowry that he was talking about the fact that he's been pivoting and trying to figure out what does it look like to get, make himself more accessible to people, right? You didn't hear him talking about him trying to like build the most innovative thing. He's trying to create digital platforms and use and get upskilled on tools so that he can make connections and leverage his network to help people. That's what Mr. Lowry wants to do. And that's just, that's perfect. Like that's exactly what we need. If you listen to the discussion, like he and I did not agree on everything and his definitions of things are different than mine as they should be because he was working in 1968. <laughs> like He was a young man in 1968. And so my hope is, you know, as I talk to folks who are of various ages that you would consider that and ask yourself where you sit, right? in this pyramid or whatever shape you want to use, but where do you sit in this and what role are you playing? And are you operating at the top of your generational license? With that being said, look, um, there are plenty of ways to support living corporate. The first thing is you can just tell your friends about us. It's a great episode. Mr. Lowry um, really birthed hundreds and hundreds and actually thousands of careers through his legacy that he's built at McKinsey and now BCG. He has done incredible work. And there are so many people that you can tangibly point to today that were a part of his work and his coalition building. So my hope is that if you know anybody um, that is in consulting or who has been in consulting, that you would forward this episode to them, especially if they're black and brown, because this is actually American history. Uh, we were able to talk to an icon who is responsible for, frankly, the diversification of the consulting space. In fact, the mentor that I was uh, alluding to earlier, he was the second generation of black consultants at McKinsey. And he wouldn't have been there without Mr. Lowry. And without my mentor, I might not be where I am. Right. So trust me, it's important. The things that we do are important. The things that we're trying to you know, your time matters, right? That's what I'm trying to say. Your time matters. It's important to use it effectively and use it wisely because you're making an impact and people are seeing and hearing you whether you know it or not. And so use that time effectively. I'll be purposeful and intentional with your time. And um, so, yeah, you know, tell somebody, tell folks about this episode. Man. I'm sorry, I'm passionate because I think I'm just thinking about all of the seeds and the things that he's grown and he's built here. It's incredible. Anyway. Tell somebody about the episode. And the other thing you can do is give us five stars. Give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to let folks know that we exist. It's also just a great way to, to grow and build our community. 
Until next time, y'all, this has been Zach. Check us out at living-corporate.com. Until next time, y'all, peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.